Psalm 42, reading verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I guess I'll read verses 1 and 2. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would have your Holy Spirit to come and apply it to our hearts now. Be with us, we pray, in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, that doesn't mean we'll just be covering that little bit that I read. And as a matter of fact, what I'm going to do, I just wanted you more comfortable. I don't know about you, but when I'm standing, I'm not entirely focused on what I'm looking at. I don't know if that's just me, but I figured maybe if you're sitting, you don't focus. I don't know. Maybe it's the opposite for you. But I want to read all of Psalm 42 and all of Psalm 43. Sounds like a lot, but it's only 16 verses. So let me go ahead and read that now. And you can actually follow along if you have one of these. All the text is there in New King James. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God, with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mizar, Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And on the harp I will praise you, O oh God, my God. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. In the spring of 1996, our family was vacationing, and we were driving through southeastern Utah. And there are like 100 people that live in the southeastern quadrant of Utah, it seems. And I loved it. It's probably one of the best vacations I've ever had. 
because I really liked being out in the middle of absolutely nowhere with a nice asphalt road that I can drive for hundreds of miles and not see anybody. And yet, it, what's interesting is that it was probably one of the worst vacations for my wife because she was allergic to something in the air in Utah in April of 1996, and she was miserable. And uh, sad to say, that didn't diminish my joy that much. <laughs> I still really enjoyed being out there, and I just felt bad for her every time I'd look over. But uh, that's the truth, sad but true. And uh, yet, what's interesting is that that kind of extreme of that was about to get more weird. We arrived at this town, town, you know, I mean, I think half the people from southeastern Utah lived here, and so there were about 50 of them. And uh, we arrived there right at dusk, and we checked into this hotel, and then they had a restaurant right next door, and so we walked over to this restaurant. Now, it's 1996, so my kids were at that point pretty tiny. But we went in and sat down, and there was only one other occupied table. And so they seated us a few feet from that other uh, family. And uh, we get our menus, and the waiter comes, and he's talking to these people at this table. And for whatever reason, he's telling them a story that had occurred to him a couple months ago when he'd gone back east to visit his grandma. He had gone back east to visit his grandma, and on the way back from having visited her, uh, their bus broke down outside of Lincoln, Nebraska, of all places. It was a Sunday, and they had to have another bus come out from Lincoln to get them because they were just outside of the city. And he said that when they transferred buses, it was negative 23 degrees, and he wasn't ready for that type of weather. And yet, it took them a couple days to get that bus repaired, and on Wednesday morning when they boarded the bus, it was 65 degrees. And he was exclaiming that he had no idea how anywhere on earth could have extremes like that. And it was funny. We were just sitting there thinking, wow, this is so bizarre. We're sitting right next to these people because I remembered that too. I remembered how extreme that transition had been just two months earlier. And, uh, and here we were in our extreme enjoyment or disenjoyment of our vacation. And it, so it just kind of rings that it's connected. And uh, what I, why I tell you that is I've walked from my parking spot to the building downtown for 17 years now. And I've, I don't think I've seldom had any covered parking. And I'm usually pretty far away, about half a mile. And it's really cold when it gets down below zero and I have to walk a half a mile. And uh, I just can't imagine the summer. I can't imagine being so hot and humid that I'm sweating all the time by the time I get to or from my car. Because it just seems so far away from what you're experiencing right then. It's just amazing. And the reason I say all this is that that to me is what these psalms represent. They represent extremes. And so he begins, the psalmist begins with that extreme experience of that cold, of that uh, isolation from God. And then it changes gradually as he gets to the end of Psalm 43. The two of these psalms go together. As a matter of fact, uh, many commentators believe that they were once one psalm, but for some reason about 200 BC, they were split apart into two, and there are a few reasons why they believe this. For one, in the whole second book of psalms, this is the only one that lacks a title. You know how they say to the chief musician? It's the only one that lacks that. All it says is Psalm 43. Whereas for 20 psalms, you see them having a title. And then also, 
it includes that exact phrase that is used twice in Psalm 42, the very last one. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Psalms 42 and 43 are laments, which means that the writer is pouring their heart out. And that's what a lament is all about. They're pouring out their heart. They're in hard times and they're telling you about them. But these two Psalms taken together, I think, for more than a lament, they form a means of surviving and thriving through the lament. In other words, what are you to do because you're lamenting? These Psalms tell you that. They tell you exactly what you're supposed to do. I have them busted up into three sections, and as you can see from this, people have got a kick out of the colorful uh, insert today. But uh, I won't really refer to it that much. I'll refer to it later, but you can feel free to you know, peruse it as we, as we talk here. But uh, there are three portions, and they're labeled here. The first is, the first five verses, in the pit of despair, and then the rest of Psalm 42, forming a plan of escape from that pit of despair. And then Psalm 43 is acting on that plan. It is executing that plan uh, successfully. Each section begins with the psalmist speaking to God. And then he goes on to speak to others about God. And then he has this sermon that he preaches to himself three times, twice in Psalm 42 and once in Psalm 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul? In between, when he's talking to the others, some of those thoughts are positive, some of those thoughts are negative, and we'll get to a little bit of that later and why he's doing that, what he's going through. But the first thing I wanted to talk to you about is his being in the pit of despair and what that is like for him. When you read this and meditate on this, the first thing you really begin to see is that this is, or was anyway, a very godly man. He knew what it was to be in the presence of God for extended periods of time. And he longs for that again. He wants to be back there. He uses this illustration, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. Many of us might think of this as a deer arriving at the water brook and having his uh, thirst quenched, but that's not what you see here. This deer is out there panting, and he's nowhere near his water brook. He's afraid he's going to die. He's perhaps running from enemies, a pack of dogs, for instance, and his only hope is to find that water brook, to find safety. See, because it's more than quenching his thirst. It's surviving whatever is hunting him, whatever is bringing him down. It's said that when deers are being chased by dogs, if they find a river, they just jump in. They risk drowning over being torn apart by the wild animals that are chasing them. It stands to reason that that's true. And so what we're seeing here is a man who's picturing that of himself. He is to the extent of his rope. And he knows what he lacks. The deer knows what it lacks. It lacks safety and it lacks the quenching of its thirst. This man lacks those. He lacks the quenching of his spiritual thirst. He longs again for the intimacy that he once had with God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? 
Now, what does he mean in verse 3 when he says, My tears have been my food day and night. My tears have been my food day and night. Have you, many of you, I'm sure have, but have you ever cried so much to where the tears are just coursing down your face and into your mouth? I think you have. Some of you have. I know I have. I tell you, when my dad died, I cried like a baby. I, I was with my aunt and uncle and, their, and my cousin, and they were just staring at me like, oh no, what's going on here? But hey, I was 39 years old and I'd lost my dad and I was crying like a baby there at the hospital. And uh, that just happens to us sometimes. Now, physical pain can bring tears to your eyes, right? I remember once in high school, a couple of us guys were goofing around and I happened to hit this guy just right on the nose and the tears just started coming out of his eyes. I felt bad for him. I didn't mean to do that, but we were just joking around. But uh, the tears stop once that intense pain subsides with a blow. But when it's some emotional pain that's in you, this anguish that's in you, you can't control them. They're just pouring out. You can't stop them. You can't control them. And that's what he's facing. He is, he is uh, you wipe them away and they just come back. You wipe them away, they just come back and eventually you just give up. You quit wiping them away. <laughs> You're tired of trying to deal with it. And then they start getting into your mouth and you taste that salty taste. And in a sense, you think this is proper. This is appropriate. I'm tasting this salt because it's not a pleasant thing at that point. And yet, you're not really doing anything to change it. You can't. You're just at the, at the uh, whim of whatever is driving this emotional distress that you're in. And then, too, it's all that you're eating because you don't have an appetite when you feel like that. You have no hunger for food, not even dainties. You just don't want them. They're not getting into you. You don't care. Some of you smile because you think, oh, I'll never lose my appetite for dainties. Maybe that's true. But... Uh, this intense anguish that this man is experiencing is not enough. Now he also has his tormentors continually saying to him, where is your God? So this man is in exile away from his homeland. And the timing is uncertain. Uh, many think it's David. And so he's been exiled from, from Jerusalem by either or wherever the capital really of the country is at that point, but he's been exiled due to Saul or Absalom. Um, others believe it is a later exile under the Babylonians, and that is what I would favor, because when they say, where is your God? That kind of coincides with the way pagans thought of gods. They think of gods as being gods of a land. And so, we've taken your land. We've driven away your God. Where is your God now? He's not defending Jerusalem or Judah. So where'd he go? What's he doing now? And so this could be a pagan taunt of this godly Jew. This type of anguish wants to escape the pain. And so that's why we see this. When I remember these things, and so he's being reminded of things. When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise with a multitude that keep a pilgrim feast. He's taking little mental vacations from his pain. Uh, I take mental vacations a lot and uh, maybe you do too. 
I, I remember reading a Dilbert once where he said he takes little sick, uh, the, the one guy that never works, he said he takes vacation in six minute increments at meetings when he's avoiding assignments. I'm on vacation now, sorry, I can't take that assignment. But uh, this man is taking little mental vacations away from the pain and anguish that he's experiencing. And he's doing it by reminiscing about what his past used to be like. His past was much more joyful than his present. He was longing for the good old days when he was with the multitude, when he was joyful, when he was praising God, and when they were feasting. Those are all wonderful things. There is a, uh, a f another favorite movie of ours where this dance teacher is told by her son that he doesn't want to compete in this dance thing that he's trained his whole life for. And she's kind of in denial and she's teaching a dance class and she continues to smile and talk to the kids and then she goes into this little room and, and she puts her happy face on. She goes back out and she keeps saying, happy face, happy face. But then eventually it becomes too much for her and she just bursts into tears in the middle of her class and she starts kind of stomping her feet and breaking down and everybody's now silent and watching her. But that's the way this type of thing is. It just comes and goes so suddenly. You really have no absolute control over these feelings anymore. You feel like you're out of control. Now, this is, to me, one of the most interesting things that occurs in this text. You get to verse 5, and he starts talking to himself, preaching at himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? This comes at you suddenly in this text. When you really read this, it, it seems kind of shocking. It seems out of place. And yet, it keeps occurring. And it remains kind of out of place. And yet, he's giving us the key to what is necessary to escape the pit of despair that he has entered. He is rebuking himself. He catches himself dwelling on these other thoughts, these other much more pleasant thoughts, but they're not helping him. He's still in the pit. And so he must get out of that pit in order to overcome these emotions and gain control of them again. And so the first thing he does is begin catching himself. And when he finds himself allowing his mind to wander, as has been common, he nips it in the bud. He finds it and he stops it. He's in the pit of despair, but he wants out. Now, what is this sermon that he preaches to himself? Why are you cast down, O my soul? I want to make two observations about this. The first is that he acknowledges to himself and to us that he is cast down. We don't always do that. We don't always do that with one another or even to ourselves. We pretend, perhaps, that it's not affecting us, that something hasn't affected us more than what apparently it did because it's causing us this spiritual, emotional anguish. Yet he acknowledged it. And the second thing is he questions it. Why? He seems genuinely surprised that he is as down in the dumps as he is. And he wants to do something about it. Now, he's not questioning the circumstances he finds himself in. They're bad circumstances. He's not questioning the, the, this reality. But he is saying, why? Why am I taking this so seriously and destroying my emotional uh, peace and joy? And then he says, 
hope in God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. So let's talk about the hope in God first. Two things again. First is he's taking responsibility for his thoughts and emotions. They have been controlling him now for who knows how long. He keeps entering into this cycle of where he wants to get out of it. Perhaps any of us would want to use anything, not just happy stories from our past, but we can use uh, sleeping in, avoiding work, avoiding whatever situations remind us of this spiritual anguish we're in. Um, uh, drugs, drink, anything, anything that can dull the pain for a time. And yet none of those lead to a solution. All they lead to is greater despair when it wears off. And so then you need more and more and more and it gets worse and worse and worse. So he recognizes that and he takes responsibility and he tells himself, hope in God, hope in God. He commands himself to do what he knows he needs to do and yet what he knows is very difficult for him to do because he has no hope. This hope has to come from God and that's where the praise comes in. They're connected. Look at this, hope in God for I shall yet praise him. Now what he means by yet is not I shall yet praise him like a in the future type of thing. He's saying no, I shall yet praise him. In other words, even without the hope, I'm going to praise God. When I praise God, the hope will come. They're connected, they're interlinked. And God is giving you that as a means of gathering up this hope that he requires of you. God alone can address our emotional states in this situation. God is the giver of our emotional states. Uh, let me uh, show you what is in John 6, 67. This, when I was a young Christian, this is probably one of the things that most affected me as I was reading the Gospels. And it's where Jesus was preaching to the people so candidly, so roughly, that many of them stopped following him in John 6. And uh, he turns to the 12 and he says, do you also want to go away? And what does Peter say? To whom shall we go? There is nobody else to go to. So see, Peter knows there is no answer. He knows Christ is the answer. And he isn't going to be driven away by Jesus' uh, uh, severity in the situation. And so Peter clings to him. No, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying right here. I don't care how rough it gets. So see, that's the way it is with God. That's when we're in that despair. You must cling with God, to God. He's the only th person, the only uh, means of you escaping the anguish that you're experiencing. And then he says, I shall yet praise him, and I've already connected those two. I want to share three Matthew Henry quotes concerning this one verse, verse 5. Why are you cast down on my soul? Uh, he has such great quotes on this. The first is this. It's very simple. Matthew Henry says, Casting anchor, thus at first, he rides out the storm. Casting anchor, thus at first, he rides down the storm. So he even used the word cast in there just to, to connect it mentally. So see, what he says is he recognizes that he's in this ship that's just getting buffeted about by the storm. He can't do anything about it. He's not in control anymore. He chucks the anchor out. He wants it to grab a hold of something, grab a hold of God that can slow this ship down, that can prevent it from being buffeted like it is. And so that's exactly what he does. This mini sermon 
is his way of chucking that anchor out such that it can help stabilize his boat. Then he goes on with another illustration. When the soul rests on itself, it sinks. If it catches hold on the power and promise of God, the head is kept above the billows. The billows meaning those rolling waves. I told you about the deer earlier. Remember when I told you that sometimes it would jump in the river? People who have watched deer do this have said that sometimes all you can see is the muzzle of that deer sticking up out of that river. That's all that that deer has the strength to keep up above the water. They'd gladly have their whole head and body above it. All they're really trying to do is escape the animals and, and maybe lose their scent if they're that instinctively driven. But they might drown, and yet all they're trying to do is keep their muzzle above the water. And that's exactly what Matthew Henry says is going on here. This man preaches this sermon to himself for the same purpose. I want to share one more. Being cast down springs from unbelief and a rebellious will. We should therefore strive and pray against it. I guess I would only qualify this to say that I'm not sure that that's all this springs from. That seems to be what Matthew Henry believed, and it's at least what he stated. But yet the psalmist does recognize that he must combat the despair that he is feeling. He must do it. And he tells himself that he has no reason for such dark thoughts as he has been consumed by. So now let's go on to the next section. We've completed section one. That's where he recognizes that he's in the pit. Section two is where he devises a plan to escape the pit. He begins by talking to God again in verses six and seven. Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Didn't he just say, why are you cast down on my soul? And yet the very next thing he says after he's finished preaching to himself is he talks to God and he says, God, my soul is cast down within me. So he's admitting now to God, my little sermon didn't help enough. Therefore, I will remember you. Again, this is, I think, one of the most important things that I'll share with you for this. Therefore, I will remember. He's linking his soul being casting down with remembering God. So when your soul is cast down, he's telling you, remember God. Remember who God is, what God has done, and where you're going one day. You have all that knowledge. You have it in you that should give you joy, that should allow your spirits to be buoyed up. Matthew Henry, another quote. This one's great. And actually, this is very, very similar to what uh, Dr. Shepard shared earlier. The way to forget our miseries is to remember the God of our mercies. So he starts thinking positively here in verse 6. He says, therefore, I will remember. And he says, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime in verse 8. And this is where he's beginning. He's not addressing God anymore. He's starting to speak to those around him, to those he's sharing his anguish with. And he speaks, hopefully, for the first time, I might add, to others about what he's going through. In verse 9, we begin to see the escape plan. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a breaking of my bones, my enemy reproaches me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? I will say... 
to God my rock. He's devising a plan in which he approaches God and shares this grief with him. And this is part of his desire to get out of the pit. He began by being in the pit, and all he did is look around and he sees he's in the pit. But then he looks up and he sees that he can get out of this pit with God's help. And so now he begins to devise the plan to get out of that pit. And this is where I'll kind of familiarize you with this. You, you've kind of been referencing this. Um, some of it's cryptic, I know. Three sections, as I said, each being capped by the sermon to himself. Each of them starts with him talking to God, and then he talks to others, and then he talks to himself. But notice this. As you move through the sections and he preaches to himself, he then preaches to himself, and then he talks to God more. After he's preached to himself, after he has admonished himself to have hope in God, he goes to talk to God. And so it creates this virtuous cycle by which he is getting out of this funk that he's been in. Now, too, I, wanna, I have a little note here about the where is your God, but you can see that the attack of the enemy first in the first section, where is your God, caused him to go into a deeper funk. He's now reminiscing. He's escaping from this attack of the enemy. And then he catches himself and he preaches to himself. But then down at the very bottom, he says, where is your God? And immediately he preaches to himself. He doesn't go negative there. And then later, he doesn't even entertain the attack of God in the third section. He's talking to God practically the whole thing. And then he says, I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy in voice, verse 4. And he jumps right back to talking to God. The Psalms have always confused me because the, who you're talking to, you never really quite know. It's suddenly you lapse into this person and that person. It just seems so odd. It's like, who wrote this? God wrote this. He wants us to figure that out. He wants us to figure out what that writer's going through in his heart and mind. And you can. You just really need to read it and understand that he's not obeying our modern rules of grammar and sentence construction. So we just have to, you know, not read it as an English teacher would. We read it as a desperate Christian who wants to know what's going on. So he uh, addresses God in this first section 25% of the time. He addresses God in the second section 40% of the time. He addresses God in the third section 88% of the time. Instead of complaining to others about what he's going through about God, because for instance, look at the second section, the parts that's in black in verse 9. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? I marked that in black, which to me is kind of like a negative. He is forming a plan, but he's only telling others about it. He's not talking to God. But that very same thing, you come over here and you see he's doing it. Then I will go to the altar of God. Uh, why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So he's enacting the plan that he's developed. He's finally talking to God about this. God, the one that can solve the problem. And oftentimes when we're in this despair, we're not talking to God because we don't think he's listening. In the very first sentence, he says, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. But then the very first next thing, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He goes away from God. He goes away from God, seeking his solution elsewhere. But yet the more he preaches to himself, the more he clings to hope, 
The closer he gets to God, the more he talks to God, the more his spirits are buoyed. Notice also here, too, that he throws out this other anchor, this self-sermon, this mini-sermon, preaching to himself. This is another anchor. He gets to the end of the second sanction. Another, another anchor goes out. I'm still getting buffeted. I'm still thinking these negative thoughts. Fix me, Lord, please. Now let's go into the last section, and we'll talk a little bit about that. You can see the transformation that's occurred by the time you get to Psalm 43. It almost seems to me that this is why those people in 200 BC split it into two, because the character just totally changes. He's transformed by this time. But by separating them, it's almost like they're detaching the two. But I think it's important that they keep them together. He is now heavily engaged in conversation with God, heavily engaged. And he pleads with God, vindicate me, O God, plead my cause, deliver me. He's very passionate about what he's experiencing, and he's very passionate about God, the relationship he has with him. In verse 1, you don't see the passion. But here, in this verse 1 of 43, you see the passion. And note also in verse 2, the confidence that you see. He says, for you are the God of my strength. He's confident now in God's ability, God's ability to change his situation. And then in verse 3, you see conviction. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. He's now convicted not only that he is overcoming his personal situation, but now he's expanding beyond his small world, his world of me, myself, and I. He's included God. He's been whining to these others, but now he's addressing these others in a positive sense. God, send forth your light. They will lead me, but they will lead everybody else as well. And he's integrating himself back into a world that he had removed himself from because of this anguish that he was going through. He ends again by preaching the sermon. And this is, to me, also one of the most interesting aspects of this. At the very end of 43, he again preaches to himself. Because, see, even though he has returned to God and he's talking to God, he must keep preaching to himself. He must keep following the prescription that God has given him in his word, and that is hope. Praise, hope. So anytime he gets down, he needs to go to God. He needs to resolve it with God. And listen, why are you downcast? His answer, his implied answer is you shouldn't be. Regardless of his own circumstances, he told himself, I have no reason to be as down as I am. I don't care what my circumstances are. God in heaven loves me, and he is ready to communicate with me, and therefore I will go to him, and I will end this darkness that I'm in. Hope in God. God alone holds the key to your emotions. You might not know or realize that. You might think chocolate has a greater effect on your emotions, but I don't think so. God does. So go to God when you feel down. He can change your situation and then also praise him. The psalmist knew the answer was hope in God. That's why it's showcased right in the middle of each of these sermons, hope in God. Don't lose that hope. He just needed to remind himself of it. Now, the reason I chose this topic is personal, but yet also we try to address issues that are of concern to the congregation. And I've just personally felt the last two years, and especially the last two or three months, 
that we want, we need encouragement. We need to be trained in how to overcome discouragement. Discouragement is always going to be there, eating away at your joy like rust. And so you must address it. You can't ignore it. You can't just think it will go away on its own because it might not. You can't just think that these moods that come and go are something that you have to live with. I don't think you should. You should address it. You should take it to God. But I would admit that some of you have gone through much, much deeper dark nights of the soul than me. Some of you have not gone through any, and I'm so thankful that you haven't. And yet I know some of you that have gone through very, very spiritually dark times. And so I pray that this is a help to you, that it can be practical. That's why in part I gave you this. It's kind of funny, but it's, but it's uh, I think, just simple. It's the type of thing you can fold up, carry with you. So if you enter into dark times, try to remember to meditate on this. Preach to yourself. Talk to God. I'll close with a Matthew Henry quote. The psalmist strove against his despondency, and at last his faith and hope obtained the victory. Hope in God. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit to fill us with joy and peace and all of the wonderful things that you have for us. We have a foretaste of it here on this earth, and yet we know that we will experience this fully with you in heaven. And we thank you, Lord, for the fact that we have this to look forward to. And we pray that you would draw us through by your power the dark times that we have here on this earth. We don't know why they come, Lord, but we know that you have them for a purpose. So we pray that you would work out that purpose in us and that we would be a compliant in your hands. And yet give us hope, give us faith, and we pray, Lord, that you would give us joy and peace that goes with it. In Jesus' name we pray and give you thanks. Amen.